0: Hello, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, June the 27th. We continue at our look at the book of Hebrews. So this morning we will dive right in. You know, the ninth chapter of Hebrews may seem to be many to be uh, to be way too involved and to some degree even confusing. But it was perfectly clear to the Hebrew readers to whom this letter was actually first written. It, it describes in quite detail the, the tabernacle in the wilderness with its sacrifices and, and its regulations of food and drink and clothing. And and so it seems difficult to us and, and perhaps even, let's be honest, maybe even a little boring, but I think it will help help us to see what the author is driving at. If we start there, then we can have everything kind of in the right perspective. And, th- and that point is made clear in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 9, reading from the NIV, chapter 9 of Hebrews 13 and 14. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The practical effort of Jesus's ministry to us is given in, in these words to purify your conscience, your conscience from dead works. The problem that is faced in this section, in this passage then, is, is how to handle a nagging conscience. We each have one. We each have a conscience. We may not be able to analyze it, and, and we certainly can't control it, but we know we all have one. Conscience has been... Defined as that still, small voice that makes you feel smaller still. (laughs) Or, Or it is that which feels bad when everything else feels good. Conscience is that internal voice that sits in judgment over our will. You know, there's a common myth that says that conscience is is the way by how we we tell what's right and and what's wrong but conscience is not that it is it is training that tells us what is right or wrong but when we know what is right or wrong it's our conscience that insists that we do what we think is right and avoid what we think is wrong And, and that distinction is very important you see conscience can be very mistaken it is not a safe guide in and of itself it accuses us when we when we violate whatever moral standard we may have. But, but that moral standard may be wrong when viewed or compared in the light of God's revelation. But conscience also gives approval whenever we fulfill what, whatever standard we have, even though that standard could be right or wrong. And conscience, we have all discovered, acts both before and after the fact. It can either push or punish, if you will. Well, in the case of these, these Hebrews, the problem is not overdoing wrong. It, it's not a conscience troubled over bad things, evil deeds, but rather, quote-unquote, dead works. So we have to remember that the readers of this letter are Christians. They're believers who already know the, the, the protocol, how to handle the problem of sins. When they become aware that they have deliberately disobeyed what they know to be right, they know the only way they can quiet and avenging conscience is to confess that sin before God and, and deal with the problem immediately. The aspect of a troubled conscience can, can easily be taken care of by believers as they accept the forgiving grace of God. But the problem here is, is a conscience that's sickened with guilt over good left undone. So in other words, not sins of commission, but sins of omission so these people try to put their conscience to 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 rest by religious activity they they are sort of pushed on goaded almost by this uneasy conscience into a high gear program in order to quote unquote please god so here are people who are are intent on doing what is right and, and so pleasing to god so they've launched out on this intensive program of religious activity which may range all the way from bead counting and candle burning to serving on committees passing out tracts, teaching sunday school classes race Steadman says this what perceptible difference in motive is there between a poor blinded non-believer who in their misconception of truth crawls endlessly down a road to placate god and an American Christian who busies themselves in a continual round of activity to try to win a sense of acceptance before God? The answer is none whatsoever. So have we ever thought something like this? Like, I don't know what is the matter with me. I do all I can to serve the Lord, but I still feel guilty. And then I feel guilty about feeling guilty. And well, precisely, it's it's, a, it's rather discouraging, isn't it, to see that all this huge effort on our part is dismissed here, according to the writer of Hebrews, as dead works. It's disconcerting to see that such effort is not acceptably serving God. but But God is not impressed by my, by our feverish effort. So what? So what do we do when this is the problem? Well, well certainly the answer can't be to try harder. Well, that, that would be the worst thing we do. So let's, let's start at the first of the chapter, at the beginning. The, the problem the writer of Hebrews points out is not the nature of what we do. It is not activity itself, because there was in the Old Testament a very God-authorized place of activity. So beginning with verse 1 of chapter 9. <clears throat> now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle was set up in its first room were the the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered ark of the covenant. And this ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had had budded and the, and the stone tables Tablets, excuse me, of the covenant, and above the ark were the, the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now, and, and neither can we. The point they make is there's nothing wrong with the activity of worship in the tabernacle. It was God-authorized, it, and perfectly appropriate. Also, there were God-authorized regulations, picking back up in, in verse 6 of chapter 9 when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and and that only once a year, and, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit was showing by this that That the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. All these activities had to do with the Old Testament, the worship in the tabernacle, and the regulations connected with it. But the writer of Hebrews is simply pointing out that that there were three drastic limitations to these. First of all, if these Old Testament worshipers saw no deeper than the ordinance that they were performing, the only benefit would be to the body. The writer says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot perfect the conscience, but deal only with food and drink and various regulations for the body because these affected only the outer person there's no change in the inner person the performance of a service or a ritual or a sacrifice an ordinance well it does not do anything to the performer it only affects the part of the body involved in the performance the writer's saying in baptism, the whole body is cleansed. If it's kneeling or, or bowing, then the only part of the body involved is, is, is affected. This is, the, this is his argument. No ritual or ordinance has value in itself. These things are to lead us to the thing. Ultimately, to Jesus. Jesus. But this has to be said again and again and again to ourselves. We have to tell ourselves we are so convinced. I am so convinced that God places value in performance. But no, the writer says that even in this God authorized system, there was no value in what was done. They, they make that that very clear. The conscience was not touched. And so it gave the worshiper no rest you know, continually howling them, making them feel guilty, dragging them back to perform the same thing over and over and over again in this restless search for peace. It's like a man who goes down and and buys a new suit every time he needs a bath. You see, his solution never touches the real problem, but keeps covering it up. And eventually that kind of a person becomes very difficult to live with. The second point that the author makes is these ordinances were intended to have a deeper message. They are symbolic, they say, for the present age. No ritual had meaning in itself. It had meaning in what it stood for. That's the point. It was intended to convey a deeper message. The tabernacle worship, with all these strange provisions, the bread, the incense, the offerings, the ornate building itself with its altars, all was a kind of religious play. And it was being done to teach the people what was going on in their inner life. There, was, there were not to, to place importance on the outward drama. That was only a play. It was what it stood for that was important. But, but they completely missed the point and thought God was interested in the ritual. And in chapter 10, the author of Hebrews will say very plainly, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, God has taken no pleasure. God was never interested in ritual. It, it, it meant nothing to him. And the third point that they make is is that these things will never touch the conscience, reach the inner man, or do anything effective until men accept this fact that religious activity, in other words, ritual, is only a picture, and it has no value in itself at all. As they say, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary, the real inner man, was not yet opened, as long as the outer tent, the tabernacle, is still standing. Is still standing is... probably translated wrong from what I've read. It, it should be still has standing. That's the correct idea. Still has value in their sight, in other words. That, in other words, they, could, they can never see what God was driving at as long as they had their attention focused on the ritual. You see, the thing that's supposed to lead them to the thing had become the thing. They could never realize the value intended until they saw behind the ritual to what God was saying, until they saw the total worthlessness of outward things to do anything for them. They can never begin to apply the real message. Now, there are some in the Old Testament who did see this. You know, we can't read David's experience recording in the 51st Psalm without seeing that he gets it. The psalm was written under this terrible twin failure, of adultery and murder into which he committed and he was the king and in the psalm he confesses that god brought conviction to his heart and and he says in psalm 51 verses 16 and 17 you do not delight in sacrifice or i would bring it you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings my sacrifice O god is a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart you god not to despise you see david understood the worthlessness of mere ritual that is that is a part of why he's called a man after god's own heart that's acts 13 22. but the rest of the people by and large well they missed the point so they were goaded by their conscience into an endless routine of religious activity until they came to despair in contrast to this the writer gives us the power of reality not that this is us at all not that any of us struggle with this i'm sure Picking up in chapter 9, verse 11, the blood of Christ. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal So do we see the argument that they, the the writer saying the first arrangement, depending on, depending on the activity of the worshiper, that's the point, affected only the body. If there's something we're trying to do for God, it is our activity on his behalf. All it ever affects is the outer man, the body. It never quiets, quiets the conscience. It can't. Because it does not get below the surface. It does not touch that, that area. But the second arrangement, the new constitution by which we as believers are to live, depends not on the work of the worshiper, but on the work, the activity of Christ in our place. So it moves through the person. When the conscience in there is, 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 con- is confronted with the value of Jesus Christ's blood, well, it, the conscience has nothing to say. Do we see that point? The writer is declaring, the writer of Hebrews is declaring that our activity adds nothing to our acceptance before a holy God. God does not like us better because we serve Him. Our service, our faithful work on His on His labor, on His behalf, our labors, our diligent efforts do to do something for God, never make Him think one bit better or worse of us. God does not love us. Because we serve him. God loves us because he is love. He accepts us because we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the only reason. So serving then is not a duty. But if we see it in this correct light, it becomes a delight. The discovery of this secret has enabled believers down through the ages to to overcome the accuser. They overcame him by the blood of God of the lamb they did not remind him of of the blood of christ they reminded themselves they they refused to wilt before his accusations and were therefore able to enjoy free access to the throne of grace and full delight in service it's amazing these these overcomers did not keep looking at their inner condition they looked rather at the solution that god had given to the problem so at this point most of us will raise a question which frequently nags christians and believers it, it and is often voiced by by the enemies of the christian faith someone inevitably will ask well why does there have to where where does this have to be by blood why is death necessary you see the christian gospel rests on the blood sacrifice of jesus christ and this fact is it's, it's been a source of a lot of criticism, to be frank, and a stumbling block to some people. It is, it is this mark of finality that the writer of Hebrews now looks at, picking up with verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant— In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So without death, the writer argues, it is not possible to receive the benefits of the covenant that God makes. The writer points out that no will that's ever written can give away any benefits until after the death of the maker of the will. We can't, avail ourselves of all that Jesus Christ provides for us in terms of release from this guilty conscience unless there is a death. The will is useless without it. In fact, the writer says, death is so important that even the shadow, the picture in the Old Testament, the play required blood. Not, of course, the blood of Jesus Christ, but the blood of bulls and goats. Blood is, is inescapable, and it has been since Genesis, When mankind realized that they were naked and had to kill an animal to cover themselves up. Now, that brings us to the point. Why? We'll never come to the to the answer till we squarely face the implications of this, the substitutionary character of the death of Jesus Christ. His death was not for his own sake. It was for ours. He was our representative. This is what God is so desperately trying to convey to us. The cross is God's way of saying, there is nothing in us worth saving at all apart from Jesus. No salvageable content whatsoever. He takes us as we are, men and women apart from Christ, and he says, There is nothing you can do for me, not one thing. For when Christ became what we are, when he was made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, God passed sentence on him and put him to death. This is God's eloquent way of saying to you and I, there is nothing to please me in yourself. There is not a thing that you can do by your own effort that is worth a thing. All that we can ever be without Christ is totally set aside. Death eliminates us, wipes us out. That is why our activity does not improve our relationship with him in the least degree. It does not make us any more acceptable, even though it is activity for him. It's what Timothy Keller calls damnable good works. See what this does to my pride? It cuts the ground right out from under us. Have you ever heard a Christian talking in a way as to give the impression that the greatest thing that ever happened to God was the day that he found them? But we are not indispensable to him. He is indispensable to us. And the great truth to which this brings us in is if we become bankrupt to do anything for God, we we're then able to receive everything from him. That is what he wants us to see. That is why verse 14 closes with this wonderful sentence, "The blood of Christ purifies our conscience to serve the living God." The gospel is that he has made himself available to us to do everything in us as a living God. Faithful is he who calls you and also who will also do it, 1 Thessalonians 5. The one who causes us to do something is the one who intends to do it through us. So we have to stop thinking. We have to depend on our intellect, our ability, our gifts, our talents, our anything, and start reckoning on his ability to supply what we lack to do when he asks us. We can say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. Do we understand what, what an actual relief that is? But the point of the whole passage is if we refuse to reckon this way, to count this as truth, if we refuse this, then there are no benefits of the new covenant available to us. A covenant is not in effect until there is the death of the will maker. It is us through Jesus Christ, our representative, who died that death. But if we will not accept it, if we will not agree to this and accept God's sentence of death on all that we are, then we can't have the benefits. That is what the writer is saying. If we fight this sentence of death, we will always be wrestling with the problem of whether we have done enough and have been pleasing to God by our activity. But if we accept this, the effects makes our service pure delight I want to close by reading Hebrews 13 20-21 now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to him be the glory forever and ever Amen. And that is the secret of a clear conscience. Amen. And God bless.